Uh, as you can see from the graphic this morning, as we consider Advent this season, we're thinking of Advent from the perspective of waiting. And this has uh, been interesting for me to think about. I realized as a child, I, when I think of waiting in Advent, the first thing that comes to mind for me is thinking of waiting as a child, right? Like you, you know that Christmas is coming and you can open gifts. And it's like, at one point, my parents, we had an archway in our house that like big between the living room and the dining room. And they had 24 Christmas ornaments hung up on the archway so that every day we could take one ornament and hang it on the tree because it was impossible for us to like conceive of how long it was going to be before we could open our presents. So I think waiting and Advent go together really well, um, but, but it's probably most natural to think of them on a kind of from, from the child's waiting for Christmas perspective, or at least that's what comes to mind first for me. Um, I, what, I've, what I've realized though in the last few years is that I think the, the waiting aspect of Advent is the thing that I actually most identify with in Advent, but from an adult perspective. And you probably, if you got the intro email to this series, I thought it summarized this really well. Um, ad, ad, there's, there's a lot going on in the world right now, and there's a lot that makes us think about the things that we're waiting for. So whether, um, whether we're following all the latest sexual harassment, uh, whoever is resigning this week or last week, and it's new every week, um, whether we're following things going on in the rest of the world, in, in Burma or Myanmar, and the cleansing of the Rohingya, the racism in our country, city, neighborhood, the election tomorrow, the next day, sometime soon, hopefully so it gets out of the headlines in Alabama. There's just all these things going on in the world that I think as an adult cause us to really sit back and say, this is not how it should be, and I, I'm, I'm waiting for it to be different and to be better in some way. And so in the last, I don't know, five or six years, as an adult thinking about the season of Advent, it's become a season where, um, where in some ways I'm, I find myself returning to the same focus I had as a kid, right? Waiting. But in other ways, it's really different because it's waiting, in a, identifying with the waiting of, in a substantive way for God to come and do something different in our world. So... Um, I think the holiday rush provides a lot of opportunities also to think about waiting, whether you're waiting in line or you pick the slow line at the supermarket or you're waiting for the bus and the bus passes you. But there's just so much going on. It's easy waiting, lots of waiting. And so I want to encourage us as we press into Advent and as we press into our time together this morning to think about waiting from the perspective, um, not just the, the kind of waiting that we do in everyday life or the kind of waiting that we see children do around us in this time of year, but the kind of waiting that we do when we are really hoping for, yearning for, expecting the world to become a different place. And that's what we'll look at uh, this morning. So this morning's theme is love, as you heard um, from the Advent reading. I think it was tucked in there somewhere. So we're going to talk about waiting from how we experience love and how we experience God's love in a time of waiting. So I'm going to read in a second um, a story from Scripture about a couple of uh, an old couple who spent a very long time waiting. And I think that's going to help us think about some different ways that we think about waiting. And then just so you know where we're going, what we're going to do is look at three different themes that I think they experience that are sort of common expectations that we might have around waiting but turn out to be potentially not so helpful. Um, and then how we might experience God's love and read a reflection from a book I'll introduce in a minute that can help us maybe experience God's love in a different way in times of waiting. So we're going to read Luke, uh, the first chapter, 5 through 20. It's in your bulletin. It'll pop up on the screen um, and I'm going to do my best to read it, but as you can all see in the bulletin, it's like really jammed together, so hold on if I miss anything. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. 
Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of incense, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So there we have it. We'll unpack some of the details as we get into the different expectations that this uh, caused me to reflect on this morning, and uh, hopefully some of that will provide a little more context for some of the funky names or unique setting in the story. The first expectation I want us to consider is a really common expectation that we will experience more love if we can just get ourselves into the right circumstances. Maybe that's the right job, maybe it's the right family, the right relationship, the right amount of success. If we can just get past some current setback or past the current busy season that we're in, love is somehow just around the corner and it's always just somehow around that next corner. So I want to think about that in the case of Zachariah, what he's doing, what his circumstances are, when he has this incredible encounter with an angel. So in a word, Zechariah is doing his job, right? There's, there's nothing really all that exceptional about what he sets out to do or what he ends up doing this day, at least on the front end from his perspective. In some ways, this could look like he's in the right place, right? He is in the, uh, he's in the sanctuary, in the temple. He just happens to have a job where he has a, he has a very spiritual job. And this is the season where his team has, been, has rotated into these responsibilities. Other than that, though, I think there's a lot that tells us that for Zechariah, this is just like another day at work. He came to do what he was supposed to do. And he's not feeling special. He's actually feeling everything probably from normal and to clearly very frightened. This is his job. His team has done this who knows how many times before. It's a rhythm. It's just kind of like what you do day in, day out, when, I guess, when this is your job. But there's also an arbitrariness to this, right? So not only is this just his job, it's also a really arbitrary day. He gets chosen by lot to be the one who actually goes in and burns the incense. So it's not like he volunteered to have a special role because he wanted to put himself like right in the center of things where he might encounter an angel. It's actually the reverse. He was just kind of doing his job. Everybody picked straws and he drew the short straw. He got picked and randomly. I think, um, if I remember correctly, that the reason that they picked people randomly for this particular assignment was <laughs> awesome. Um, looks okay. Everybody, it's just fine. Thanks, John. Um, <laughs> amazing. Okay, I'll just stand farther over here. Um, all right. 
So speaking of dangerous jobs that you get picked randomly for, perfect. So why did they get picked for this? They get picked a little bit randomly because it was considered dangerous. You were in the center of the most holy place in the temple. And I think, I think that if you messed up in some way or if you didn't handle it with the kind of decorum or the kind of experience that was expected, uh, something potentially not that great might happen to you. And at one point, they actually like, tied a rope around people who had a job like this so that they could like, pull them out if they were potentially, I guess, struck down right, or whatever might occur. In any case, all of which is to say, the reason that Zachariah is chosen by Lot for this is because it's not a job that people want. Right? It's not like they had a fight and everybody wanted to do it and he got the lucky straw. It's more like nobody wanted to do it, and he arbitrarily picked the short straw and got assigned to it. All of which is to say, here is Zechariah doing a very normal thing in a very normal job and then arbitrarily getting chosen for something that's even more frightening, which is why he is very surprised when the angel shows up, right? He's startled and gripped with fear. That's not the reaction of someone who's tried really hard to get into the right circumstance to experience God. That's the reaction of someone who's going about their daily business gets sort of anomalously stuck for something that's hard and unpleasant, and then is surprised when God shows up. And yet that's the moment that God picks to show up, disrupt their lives, and provide the blessing of giving them a child, which they have long waited for, which we'll talk more about in a second. So again, I think our common expectation can be that we'll experience more of God if we can just manage to get ourselves into the right circumstances. Getting into the right circumstances, though, can take a lot of effort, a lot of focus, a lot of energy. We, we can really spend a lot of our attention on that. And when we get there, we might even find out that what we thought was the right circumstance and worked really hard to get to turns out to actually not be a circumstance that's helpful to us or that had what we hoped for. So what if instead we simply have grace for ourselves and instead of pushing ourselves to the right place, we welcome God in whatever moment we happen to find ourselves in? Maybe God will show up in the regular day-to-day or in an arbitrary we happen to pick straws and ended up there or even in a place that we would think of as frightening or dismaying. I think we're more likely to experience love by keeping our eyes attentive to God in all circumstances than by keeping our eyes really attentive to trying to get into the right circumstance where we might suddenly experience God. So here's an example from my life. Um, The summer after I graduated from college, I was actually at a really challenging and kind of a low point, um, which in some ways was probably more hidden than it might have been, or maybe I experienced it more significantly than I might have been. So I had graduated college, I had a job, I was going to start, I knew where I would start working. I had a little bit of time off. It was kind of like all these things are good, right? Um, and I was actually going to be working for a college campus ministry. So in theory, like, I should have been like, I don't know, everything should have been just lovely, right? Um, in fact, though, my senior year in college had been really challenging and really messy, especially on, uh, with friendships and people that I was working with. I, thankfully, at this point, I don't even remember all the details, for which I'm very grateful. Um, it involved a lot of friendships breaking over everything from race and racism, gender, sexism, drifting apart because we lived in different places on campus, politics, all kinds of things that happened. So, after, so I had this really intense year, senior year of college, and I literally felt like, I don't know what the right image is of like escaping a burning down set of friendships. So think of it like escaping a burning down building, but it was a set of like friendships, right? So I, I escaped this. I'm home visiting my parents, and I had just seen an old friend, and I had some extra time. I, I, like, I was literally waiting around, because I, I think I got dinner with a friend or something, and I didn't want to go home because there was like, nothing to do there but like, watch TV and hang out with my parents. So I just kind of like, had some time to kill. Um, so, so waiting. Here I am, arbitrarily waiting. So I also, um, I'm not a coffee drinker, which many of you know, so when you're arbitrarily waiting around, instead of going to a coffee shop, I went to a bookstore. And I was aimlessly browsing this bookstore when I stumbled across this book that um, I actually stood there, literally stood there in the bookstore and read the entire book. 
And then, just so you all know, and no one sense on an investigation, I did buy the book later. Um, and, I've, and, and I've actually bought multiple copies. Amazon is now telling me how many copies of this book I have bought, but that's a whole other story. Um, so the first sentence, the reason I, I, I glanced at the book, and we're going to read some meditations from it this morning. Um, if you want a visual, this is the book. Um, it's called The Inner Voice of Love by Henry Nouwen. Um, the reason I picked the book up was because I knew of Henry Nouwen, and he's a pretty well-known uh, Catholic, uh, both spiritual pastor and also an academic. Um, and so like I'd heard of him, and I happened to open the book, and he writes really short books, right? So you can think about like actually reading this while standing up in the bookstore. So, so I picked this up, and the first line of the book is this. This book is my secret journal. So how often do you pick up a book by like a well-known academic, and the first line of the book is this book is my secret journal? Pretty intriguing start. So I decided, hey, so maybe I'll give this a read. Um, what, what really drew me to the book Nowen is known for these uh, personal spiritual writings that really help you encounter God. And to think about someone like that, describing how they personally encounter God, was really intriguing. Um, it was also this really arbitrary moment, right? And this book turned out to be a book that God has really spoken to me through and supported me through. And it's, I've, I mean, I found it helpful enough that I've literally bought multiple copies now because I've given them to other people and I don't know where they went. And so I keep buying. I had to buy a new copy, actually, just to, to look back at what's in here for this sermon because I don't know where it went. Some, someone has it somewhere. If you know, anyway, um, so... So it, it, was, it was an arbitrary circumstance. I was waiting around. I had lots of extra time. I was in the bookstore. I was browsing. I found this book, and it turned out to be a book that I've like, literally kept with me for like 14 or 15 years now. Um, so what I want to do, actually, for each of the expectations that we focus on, I want to close with a reflection from now and that I think helps, helps suggest other ways that we might face that expectation. So if we often expect that we will experience more love by getting into the right circumstance, Here's a different way that Nowen has helped me think about it. This, is, uh, this reflection is called, Say often, Lord have mercy. You wonder what to do when you feel attacked on all sides by seemingly irresistible forces, waves that cover you and want to sweep you off your feet. Sometimes these waves consist of feeling rejected, feeling forgotten, feeling misunderstood. Sometimes they consist of anger, resentment, or even the desire for revenge. These waves make you feel like a powerless child abandoned by your parents. What are you to do? Make the conscious choice to move the attention of your anxious heart away from these waves and direct it to the one who walks on them and says, it is me, don't be afraid. Keep turning your eyes to him and go on trusting that he will bring peace to your heart. Look at him and say, Lord, have mercy. Say it again and again, not anxiously, but with confidence that he is very close to you and will put your soul to rest. So now in suggestion in the face of overwhelming circumstances is not to spend a lot of time and effort trying to get to the right circumstances, but first instead say often, Lord have mercy. Right? That's a very different kind of focus of our attention. So I want to encourage us to actually take this really practical advice and this literal suggestion from now in. When we're in circumstances that make it hard to experience love, uh, circumstances that make us really reflect and think about all that we're waiting for, find the thing that is that we can say to ourselves that reminds us to have confidence that God is close. And whatever that thing is, say it often. And so it might be different for each of us, and so that blank is like actually a literal blank, right? Keep attentive to God by saying often whatever it is that you would say to yourself that helps remind you that God is close and that you can be confident in God. A lot of people probably say, Lord, have mercy. I think that's a, a great phrase to return to. Others, I know others say, come, Lord Jesus. 
So think about what that phrase might be for you, and I think that's one of the most practical and literal takeaways we can, we can think about when we face experiences and circumstances um, that are not, not what we were hoping for in experiencing love. Second, the second common expectation I think we often have is that we will experience love as a result of doing the right thing. We all know that's not true, right? Because we've all done plenty of right things that didn't work out that well for us. But at the same time, I think that that sort of, like that pattern of thinking is just so deeply ingrained in us that even though we know it's not true, we, we sometimes act as if it was anyway. So take Zechariah and Elizabeth, for example. The story here goes out of its way to tell us at the beginning that they are the right kind of people. All those names that I read about being of the priestly division of Abijah and a descendant of Aaron and whatever, all of, all of that is, is in their time is describing for us, these are the right people. They come from the right family. They have the right sort of historical grounding to be in this kind of role. They're, they're the right people. Zechariah was a priest. That seems like a pretty spiritual kind of right job, right? He and Elizabeth were from the right family to be priests. It was in their heritage. It tells us they were righteous before God. It tells us, in fact, that they were blameless. And yet, despite being the best kind of people who had done the right thing, they lacked a really significant blessing. They had no children. In their time, not having children was often interpreted as a sign of God's negative judgment on you and your family, right? Whether that was true or not, and we would probably have a different experience now, perhaps, um, but, but that's how it was interpreted to them. And actually, if you read farther along, um, another four or five verses down, when Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, finds out that this, that this promise has been made, and when she's pregnant, what she says in verse 25 in rejoicing is, this is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. Right? So this is an old couple. They've been the right people for a long time. They've been blameless. They've done all the right things. And yet, this blessing has been withheld from them. So we usually know life just isn't that simple. But at the same time, it's really easy to expect that if we do the right thing, we will somehow be blessed and will experience love. And Zachariah and Elizabeth, I think, show us that that could be a very long wait. I've experienced this a lot um, in the past year in a way that is a little bit entertaining, um, also a little bit adorable, and very maddening all at the same time, which means that it has to do with our two-year-old son, Gabriel, right? So it seems very logical to me that if I figure out what the right thing to do is, I can somehow regularly convince Gabriel to give me a hug, right? This does not seem that hard. No such luck. It's like predicting the weather or like something even more, like I have no idea what's going on in his head. So a few months ago, we had this stretch of a week or two where a bunch of evenings after, there's this gap that we always have kind of between dinner and bath time, and a bunch of evenings, Gabriel would play this game where he would give, one, he would give Gail a hug, and he would turn around, and he would say, Dada's turn, and he would like toddle over to wherever I was, and he would give me a hug, and he would turn around, and he would say, Mama's turn, and he would like run back to wherever Gail was, and, he would give, and we would go back and forth for like 10 or 15 minutes. It's like, great, we love this game, right? And then he randomly decided to stop that game, and he hasn't played it since. Um, recently, Gabriel has also started putting words together um, into like phrases and whole sentences, which is really awesome almost all the time, except for times like last Saturday morning when he looks at me and says, I don't want a good morning hug. <laughs> okay, then. Or when I get home from work and he says, no dad hug, no hug, no hug, right? <laughs> um, so it's entertaining, um, but it's also kind of like maddening, right? Like, like what do I, what's the right thing that I need to do to convince him that like, he just wants to give me a hug? I don't know. I have not solved this problem, obviously. So on a more serious note, I think um, when we're seeking healing or have some hurt that needs to be addressed, 
um, some, some way that we need to experience love properly or some way in the world that we want to see the world be a more loving place. We can often veer between two extremes, being either fixated on our search for healing or working really hard to avoid that search for healing. Both, I think, at root are attempts to do the right thing, right? If we just do the right thing, we will experience this love and this healing that we seek. And both are valiant effort. They take a lot of effort. Um, and yet both, I think, fail more often than not. If we're too focused on our search for love, on experiencing love, then I think we tend to hold it too tightly and we can strangle it. And I read a psychologist once that described it, I don't remember who it was, but they described it as trying to hold sand in your fingers, right? And if you hold sand too tightly, you just squeeze it all out. And so I think when we are too focused on the experience of love that we seek or that we want to see in the world, we can actually just like strangle it and squeeze it all out. On the other hand, if we do the other and like completely just avoid thinking about the challenge, then we just avoid it, and that's not necessarily going to get us any closer, right? Um, so, so neither of those things, although both of them take pretty intense effort, neither of those things turn out to be all that helpful. Now I'm address this for me in a way that was really helpful. This is actually the first reflection in the book. Um, it was super timely, and it was reading, I mean, as much as I joke about the first line of this being like my secret journal, um, this, reading this, which is the first chapter in the book, was what made me stand up in the bookstore and read the rest of this book. And he calls it, Work Around Your Abyss. There is a deep hole in your being like an abyss. You will never succeed in filling that hole because your needs are inexhaustible. You have to work around it so that gradually the abyss closes. Since the hole is so enormous and your anguish so deep, you will always be tempted to flee from it. There are two extremes to avoid, being completely absorbed in your pain and being distracted by so many things that you stay far away from the wound you want to heal. And so you can see I've stolen most of this sermon from Nowen, right? To give him credit where he deserves it. So I, I found Nowen's phrasing of work around your abyss to be immensely helpful. So if our common experience is that we will find love if we do the right thing, and then our temptation is usually to do the right thing by like diving straight into the abyss as hard as we possibly can, or by running the opposite direction as hard as we possibly can, Nowen's answer is to simply stop. Stop running, stop diving, just walk around, like walk nearby. Practically, what I think this might look like for us is thinking about reflection in a really uh, intentional manner. Being sure to reflect regularly on, whatever, on our experience of love, whether that's a personal love we're looking for or love we want to see in the world, reflecting regularly, but not too regularly, right? So not like pulling out my phone every 30 seconds to see if I have another like. That's not the right kind of reflection that I think Nowen is getting to. At the same time, not ever thinking about it, but something like reflect regularly, reflect weekly, or reflect monthly. And I think that kind of reflection can help keep us from diving in too deeply or running away, but just regularly thinking about it and sort of walking around. Third, the third common experience I want to consider is that experiencing love will look a certain way, right? So Zachariah and Elizabeth here have a very specific expectation, and it tells us they've been praying this for a really long time, right? They want a child, and we know this because the angel says, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, right? So we know what his prayer was and what he was thinking of. I, and I, I think it's, um, and it's, especially when, we, when I noted Elizabeth's comment later, that this, this is something they've been thinking about for a long time. Um, and, and having the child is taking away disgrace that they've experienced, so they've, they've prayed for a long time for this. There's no way to really know exactly what they prayed for, right? But I think it's a pretty safe guess 
that when they prayed to have a child, they did not pray to have a child whose story would be told for thousands of years because of the role that child played in God's work and Jesus' story and the Christmas story. I mean, like, I don't even, like, I don't even know if you would be able to, like, would you know that was going to happen to be able to pray for it? Like, I, I don't know how that would work. Would, would anybody be bold enough to ask that? Maybe some, maybe they were, I don't know. But, but I think it's pretty safe to say that they were like just, they were praying for a child because they wanted their disgrace to be taken away and because they wanted to have a child. They wanted to experience love in a very specific way. They had a very concrete idea of what, what they were hoping for to experience love. And God had that for them. But God had so much more for them that they didn't know to even ask for. I love how, and I didn't really think about this until looking at this scripture this time, but the angel phrases it, um, you will, the child will bring you joy and many other people. Right? And so it's, I think that's sort of like the angel like tipping, like, you've been praying for this joy. But, but God is going to give not only you this joy, but this child is going to bring joy to so many other people at the same time. They're going to have the joy of having a child. The child will be a significant part of Jesus' story. That child will fulfill prophecy that their community has mulled over for literally hundreds of years. That child is going to play a role, is going to have the spirit and the power of Elijah. Elijah is one of the most well-known spiritual leaders in their community's history. That's, that's a lot more, a whole lot more than Zachariah and Elizabeth, I think, were expecting or would even have known to ask for. And so I want to encourage us, when we're looking for love in a certain way, that we should be open to seeing how God is providing that love, maybe in a much bigger or different way than we might have experienced or expected. So one way that I've been thinking about that um, is, is when I think about some of my most significant friendships. And so I think many of us have experienced in the current political climate that there are ways in which um, we're realizing that we have potentially really different perspectives than other people who are close to us and who are important to us. And not only are we realizing that like that's become more uh, significant, but we've also, we also feel more, I don't want to say pressure, more urging in a positive sense to do something and to get involved in the things we really care about. And when you, what I'm trying to say is when you put those two things together, recognizing that maybe people close to us feel differently and that we should be doing more about our difference, it makes things like family gatherings potentially feel like you're walking on eggshells a little bit more than you might have experienced in the past, right? All, all of our favorite newspapers write about this every time there's a family holiday in the last 12 months, right? But I think it's true, right? So when, when I look about my expectations about friendships, they tend to follow that similar pattern. I expect that the strongest friendship that I'm going to have, those that encourage me the most over the longest period of time, are going to be those friendships where I can truly, in an unfiltered way, just completely be myself. Share what's going on, talk about what's important to me, and just like not have to worry about how I share that in any way. So last August... Uh, Gail and Gabriel and I were at home visiting my parents, and it, uh, we get together for a week with my parents over the summer, and so my brother was down, and his wife and their three kids, um, and so my brother and I made a late-night ice cream run to hang out with a high school friend of ours. All three of us now have kids under five, so a late-night ice cream run is at 7.30, um, but just so you know. Um, so we do this ice cream run, right? Um, and I was reminded while we were hanging out about how much I see the world differently than my brother. And this really good friend, I mean, this friend of mine is one of the handful of people that I've kept in touch with since high school. So our conversation as we were talking, of course, turned to politics and racism because you can't really talk about much in the world these days without talking about that. And so I shared a story about an encounter that I had um, with somebody through my job who I, 
not somebody I actually work with, but and, and, before I say this, not someone I actually work with, someone through my job who I would consider to be racist, by which I mean this person may not have had any individual, like, personal cruel intentions, but he lives in and is doing things that were reinforcing a racist system. So I share this story, and almost, a re- almost immediately I realize that both my friend and my brother think of racism very differently than I do. Maybe they haven't experienced it with people in the same way they... I don't know, for whatever reason, they think about it very differently. Um, so they, and, I, and I knew this instantly because they, they, their immediate response to my story was to kind of start to push back. Right? And so it was clear to me like instantly that right these, right these are people that I can't be my most unfiltered self with. Like If I want to tell this story, I need to tell it in a certain way. The irony is I have known this for years. Right? We disagree a lot. We disagree on gender roles. We disagree on sexuality. We disagree on politics. We disagree on some like very boring, normal, like spiritual things that are not like charged at all. And yet, even though we've known about all, the, like we, we've had these disagreements for literally like 15 years, right? Um, since we were in high school and we had opinions on anything. Yet we, the three of us, we all keep coming back to these friendships. I can honestly say, like these are two people who I trust more than almost anyone in life. I love them. They are, they're, they're everything I could ask for in a friend with the only exception that neither of them will move to Philadelphia. Uh, they're, they're a huge gift. Their support and their presence in my life has been an amazing experience of love. And yet they're people that I can't be my unfiltered self with, right? So when, when I expect love and friendship to look a certain way, I can miss the love and friendship that God is actually like, has been giving me for 15 years like right in front of my face. So I think we can experience more love, more of God, when we open up our expectations. Now, in, uh, as you would expect from our structure this morning, also addresses this. And so here's the third and final um, reflection that I'll read from Nowen, and this appropriately is titled, Understanding the Limitations of Others. You keep listening to those who seem to reject you, but they never speak about you, emphasis Nowens. They speak about their own limitations, They confess their poverty in the face of your needs and desires. They simply ask for your compassion. They do not say that you are bad, ugly, or despicable. They say only that you are asking for something they cannot give and that they need to get some distance from you to survive emotionally. The sadness is that you perceive their necessary withdrawal as a rejection of you instead of as a call to return home and discover there your true belovedness. So you can tell from all of these reflections that this, this truly is like Nowen's internal journal. These are imperatives that he wrote to himself in the darkest and most challenging time of his life. So they're kind of intense, right? Um, and I don't think, um, so I'm not trying to suggest we should always like need things to be this intense in order to experience love in some way, right? But I think in his intensity, and because this is the gift he has, right, is to name things in their intensity in a way that's helpful to all of us. So we, experience, we expect to experience love in a certain way from certain people, and Nowen had some very uh, specific circumstances that happened um, that put him in a place where he kind of wrote this journal and needed to really step away from what his ministry was. What's Nowen suggesting is we should expect people to have limitations. We should welcome what we can receive, and when there's a gap between what we can receive and what we wanted to receive, we should take that gap to God to experience our true belovedness. So that's, I think, our third and final thing that I want to share as a kind of a practical step, which is a little bit fuzzier, but how, how can we take the gap? How can we catch ourselves when there's love that we wanted to experience and we're not experiencing it? How can we catch ourselves in that moment and instead of taking that as rejection, take this as a, as a gap that we need to take to God 
for God to be able to fill, as now one would say, to discover our true belovedness. So I want to close um, with, again, the words that, um, from our Advent hymn that we sang this morning, because um, this actually, you might remember last week, our kind of fill-in-the-blank on our Connect cards was, what's your favorite Christmas song? My favorite Christmas song is actually O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And, and it ties, as I continue to think about it, I, I, it just felt attached to this to me, and so I, I was trying to think through why. And I think the words in the song, for me, hit all three of these themes. These words are all about waiting. These are words that I find myself saying when, when I'm in overwhelming moments or thinking in the Advent season about how I wish God would come and change the world. I think of the words in this song. When, um, when I want to see God's love in the world and am, ex- and am experiencing a gap between what I want to see and uh, what, I, what I'm actually experiencing, I think these words are, are often a way to, that, you, that kind of is de- describes that gap, what we hope for and aren't yet seeing. And I missed the third one. Ah, uh, yes, I think these words also call us to reflect on what, on what kind of love we are seeing and what we're hoping and waiting for. So I'm going to close again with the same words that we've heard in song this morning and that we'll continue to return to here throughout Advent. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. O come, desire of nations, bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad division cease, and be, thy, and be thyself our king of peace. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here, until the Son of God appear. O come, desire of nations, bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad division cease, and be thyself our king of peace. Amen. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Thanks, and I'll turn things back over to the worship team.